The following is a Keynote 180 radio presentation. My dear bride is watching a Pakistani drama serial these days. Hum kahan ke sachche the? There's this little girl, Mehreen, in this drama serial. Her uncle and aunt take her in their foster care after Mehreen's dad accidentally dies of a drug overdose. Growing up with other children in the foster family, Mehreen, over time, becomes an obligation, a burden. She feels isolated, ignored in her foster home, to a point where she becomes just another object in the house. No regard for her presence, no regard for her being. That's quite a feeling to have. Whatever follows in Mehreen's life is a subject of another topic. But here, she came into this new family as a powerless child with an unspoken expectation and unwritten promise of being taken as an equal member of the family. That expectation, that promise remained unmet. Speaking of promises, a promise delayed is a promise denied. Some people are so fixed a part of our lives, they become simply invisible, even non-existent, like furniture, like curtains, like fixtures in our rooms. You don't even register them unless someone rings a bell to them. Among such people are our household servants, employees at the bottom of the totem pole, even some kinsfolk or friends who are nice enough not to remind us what we owe them. They become mere objects in our ecosystem of comfort and routine. We don't fathom the ruckus their absence would create in our lives until they are gone and off they go from our lives only after having waited, waited, and waited in the hopes of some spoken or unspoken return for doing their part in shaping our comfortable lives. Such is the premise of the book I recently read. An unmet promise lies at the core of the story of the latest winner of the Booker Prize, the most prestigious of awards in literary fiction. Damon Galgut, a South African writer, is the author of The Promise, a novel set in the dying days of the white segregationist South Africa. 
But before moving on, I must declare, this is not a book review. This commentary is an attempt at highlighting similar disorders in societies everywhere else. Now, sit back and savor the beautiful idea and the language that made this book worth its booker. The book starts in the wrapping up days of the old, segregated, white European Africana South Africa. It's a family soap opera that spans over four funerals in about just as many decades, starting with a mommy sword who on her deathbed, out of some bout of conscience, takes a promise from her racist evangelical husband that he will transfer the ownership of a small, decrepit wooden house on the family farm to the black housemaid, Salome, who has forever lived there with her son. The only witness to this rueful promise is their 13-year-old youngest of their, their three children, Amor. Everyone present at her mother's funeral shushes her up when she brings up the promise made to Salome. The funeral is over. Life draws on for many more years. Until, in a stupid stunt of faith, one of the many venomous snakes in a glass box where the daddy sword had encased himself to show off his all-protecting religious faith bites and kills him. At his funeral, Amor, now a little older, again reminds everyone of the still unmet promise. The family unites in rebuffing her annoying pestering reminders of the promise. Their replies, what's the need? She can live in it till she dies. Why insist on transferring the ownership? Etc. Etc. The pretentious, patronizing, collective psyche of a so-called charitable racist society would not budge an inch towards giving a sense of ownership to the real owners of the South African land. Anyway, the sun kept setting on the horizon for many more years and the promise remained unmet. Until Aristide, the second of the three Swartz children, dies in a violent carjacking only while she was musing of a somewhat secure life she had lived in an otherwise chaotic South Africa. Think of her stars drifting off kilter. The ever-shrinking Swartz family now gathers once again at Aristide's funeral. Amor, being Amor, once again raises the unmet promise. And just as before, 
her elder brother Anton, along with her aunt, pushes her back. No need to bring this issue up again and again. So, one more source funeral is over. Amor takes up an underpaid job at a hospital in an HIV ward. The rickety train of the South African days moves on until this time Anton takes his own life in a depressive fit of remorse and regret, leaving Amor the only surviving owner of the Swartz estate along with his estranged wife. Amor is now free to fulfill the promise, only 40 years later. A promise she was a witness to. A promise she had fought her own family for. But now, Lucas, Salome's only son, rebuffs her tardy gesture of giving, claiming they had always owned this house regardless. In The Promise, Damon Galgett highlights the injustices infesting every other society. He uses swords as representatives of the good, the evil, and the reluctant. We see these inequities, these inequalities, in the dispossessing of the weak and the poor, they simply don't count in our plans for life. These injustices also lay in the silencing of the voiceless. We totally miss them while getting past the invisible among us. Their invisibility often stretches to a point of non-existence. Many well-to-do families won't even notice their housemaids while bathing shitting, or even when having sex as if they are mere in inanimate fixtures around them. That's not just degrading. That's abolishing a human being. Physical and emotional cruelty towards household servants hardly makes news anymore. It's just the way it is. Damon Galgett spotlights the invisible Salome through the high beam of Amor's shaming eyes. Amor symbolizes superhumans like Mother Teresa, like Noam Chomsky, like Jimmy Carter, who won't stop raising their voices against an unjust treatment of the dep deprived and the destitute. Amor is a voice of protest for the muted Salome. She is the beacon of hope for an ever-sinking humanity. Another burning issue common to Damon Galgett's South Africa and elsewhere in the world is our preference for a sense of security in the status quo. Let matters be the way they are. This is how it has always been done. 
any change in the equilibrium will only lead to turbulence. Such are the familiar excuses in the usurper class. They scare you off the unforeseen consequences towards the security in the familiar misery. Religion also plays a big role in expanding the void between what Galgar's characters preach and what they practice, just like everywhere else in the real world. Galgut surmises this irony through his narrator where he says, Opacity of God unites them briefly before his clarities again divide. In another scene, he hints at the, the, the grand rhetoric of the pompous preachers in these words. The Lord's creation is amplified when you use heightened language to describe it. Remember, the daddy sword also died of the snakebite in a stubborn, stupid display of his religious faith. He lied among the serpents only to prove the supremacy of his faith, just like the most other conflicts that are carried out in the name of the supremacy of one religion over another. The Moors of Africa, too, were chained and slaved to chasten their heathen faith. Their, the, the, the violent jihadi mindset of today is no different in its pursuits than the modern evangelical dislike of other faiths. They all want their opposition eradicated. The frigidity of the Swartz relationship as a family is arctic cold. They only gather at family funerals. There is no connection in between. This resembles the modern solitary lives of our own, where personal touch is already diminished and whatever modicum of that personal contact ever existed is now being undercut by the COVID separations. Galgut, in describing the inner feelings of his characters, makes his readers feel as they have inhaled the souls of his characters. It has the power of transporting them on scene with the swords. Listen to this, for example. The older woman's disappointment is almost palpable, like a secret fart. Galgut often puts the pairs of paradoxes together, making reading a delight. For example, waiting in respectful silence is an essential part of the job and he has developed the capacity to simulate deep calm while experiencing none of it. In his core, Mervyn Glass is a frantic man. Here's another one. She's been living here for the past seven months, waiting for what hasn't happened to happen. Galgut often meshes dialogue with an inner monologue as if running a stream of consciousness while his characters are walking along. 
Take this, for example. How would you know she's a ghost? Many of the living are vague and adrift too. It's not a failing unique to the departed. His acute creative observation is most precise in the smallest of the details, like Michelangelo sculpting David. Check this out. They don't speak at all on the bumpy ride to the front gate, though the Adam's apple of the driver bobs up and down like a float on a fishing line as if he has something to say. For his unconventional narration, New Yorker says he has a free-floating narrator who appears whenever he wants and disappears at whim. Ladies and gentlemen, for now, we'll conclude our conversation here. We'll meet again with another interesting, enriching topic soon. Until then, I beg your leave. Au revoir and good night. My name is Dr. Salim, and this was a Keynote 180 radio presentation. Thank you.